welcome to the Light to Light podcast, presented by Arcade Theatre Company. I'm your host, Evie Howes. Light to Light is a live storytelling event based here in Dunedin. Each of our storytellers tell a true story from their life with no notes. The stories are told nestled amongst the books at the University Bookshop. These stories were presented as part of the Dunedin Fringe Festival in March 2019. Because it was the Fringe, we thought it would be fitting for the theme to be on the Fringe. Our first speaker is Harrison Kennedy. Harrison is a theatre maker and student based here in Dunedin. He melted hearts this evening when he told this story about a memory of his grandfather. Here's Harrison's story. Um, Cheers guys, I'm Harrison. I'm going to tell a story tonight about my granddad. Uh, granddad's pretty cool, we've all had one, right? Um, <laughs> they're usually pretty cool, I guess. Um, my granddad, I was lucky enough to have a pretty cool granddad. Um, there was three things that he really loved. Um, he loved Simon and Garfunkel. He loved a nice cool whiskey on a Sunday afternoon. And most importantly, he loved cars. Um, and he loved cars so much that he started collecting model cars based off the cars that he had. He got model cars for his cars. Um, this story is also sort of about me and um, a little central Otago town that I used to spend Christmases in called Naseby. Um, I don't know, yeah, Naseby, yeah, cool. Um, and um, yeah, um, me and my family, every year, we'd go to Naseby, spend Christmas there over the summer holidays. Um, and it was really cool, and uh, it, it sort of holds a special place in my heart because it was, it was kind of like my Christmas childhood. Um, you know, we used to, I remember biking up to the dam and jumping off the diving board, and the diving board was just like a plank of wood stuck into the, into the mound by the dam. And so we, as we jumped off, we had to go boing ourselves because it didn't, like, didn't spring at all. Um, uh, and, Probably my favourite thing about Naseby um, was that my grandparents came up and they stayed in a little batch uh, down the road from us and across this real big sweeping field. Um, if you guys remember the Naseby Park, some of you might know the Naseby Park. Um, and I lived sort of up and around the corner and up past the auction house. Yes, a real auction house. Big deal, big deal. Uh, and um, every sort of, every year, um, the couple weeks that we would go up to Naseby, it sort of spanned a couple weeks and there was the Sunday in the middle. And on that Sunday, uh, I did this, I, ha- I had a paper run, right? And it was not an ordinary paper run because I had one customer. <laughs> um, and the paper run, it had a lot of moving parts. So I'd wake up at Sunday morning, bright and early, 10 a.m. <laughs> I've got a lot better at that. 9.30 is sort of the use now. <laughs> I'd get up and I'd get on my bike and I'd beg my dad for 10 bucks and it'd obviously oblige because I'd get on my bike and I'd go down to the dairy and at the dairy I'd buy a newspaper, the Sunday paper, for $10 um, and then I would bike down and across the field all the way over to my grandparents' house where my customer waited me, my granddad, um, and he'd grab the paper and he'd give me 10 bob, which he called it, 10 bob. Alright, that's 10 bob, sweet. I'd take that back to the dairy and I'd spend the whole pot of loot on lollies. 
cash. I was stoked. I was like, I was like 12 years old. I just started like my first job, and I was just getting free lollies. It was, it was <laughs> Um, so after a while, um, you know, kind of a year or two passed, and I was about 14, and I biked down, and my granddad was like, I haven't got any cash. Shit. <laughs> and he came up with this idea, and he, he sort of, he went into this, uh, he had like a little suitcase, and inside it, there were his collection of model cars. And he took out a model car, and I gave him the newspaper and he gave me the little model car and I took that up the road back home and uh, just enjoyed the hell out of it. Now I'm getting free cars, pretty stoked about that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so I just, I remember that experience, um, sitting in the living room, playing with toy cars with Granddad, watching Simon and Garfunkel live with the orchestra, pretty sick on DVD, um, <laughs> epic. Um, and that just sort of continued until 2016, no, sorry, not 2016, when I was 16, <laughs> then mixed up. Um, and when I was 16 that year, my grandfather, Bob Kennedy, passed away. Um, super peacefully, in his sleep. And um, we weren't actually planning on going to Naseby that year, but uh, my parents decided we would go just one last time, just to sort of say goodbye to him, I suppose. Um, and so I remember, getting there and sort of spending the week going to the dam and doing all the fun stuff that I usually did at Naseby. And then Sunday morning came and I remember 10 a.m. bright and early, <laughs> springing out of bed and I got on my bike and at this point I was paying for the newspapers myself. I biked down to the dairy, I bought the Sunday paper and I just kept going until I got to the park and that's when I stopped and I just remembered. And I kind of just sat there for about half an hour on the ridge of the field, just looking over to this little house. And of course, at this point, um, my grandma wasn't really able to go to Naseby anymore. And so I was looking at a, just a house, um, a batch, a holiday home. And after about half an hour, I just sort of got this sudden urge um, I guess it was kind of 12-year-old me in my head telling me, the paper run doesn't stop for nothing, all right? You've got you to do your job. <laughs> and so with some weird burst of energy, I got on my bike and I just started pedaling down this hill and over the park into this house. And then I was standing there in the driveway and I was just there with my paper in my hand and looking like a bit of a ding-dong. <laughs> And then this little lady comes to the door and she opens the door and she comes out and she says, are you lost? And I said, no, no, um, this is weird. Do you want a newspaper? <laughs> and she said, yeah. And then after a few seconds she says, is your name Harrison? And I said, yeah, my name's Harrison. And, he, and she said, I know your grandfather, Bob. You know, he spoke a lot about you. Um, and I was like, oh, that's, that's cool. <laughs> and then she said, give me a few seconds. Um, I think he left something. And I, I feel like maybe he left it for you. And I was like, okay. And um, then she walked back into the house.
and she brought out this long cut, um, which I later realized was the last in his collection. And so I've been told pretty bloody rare, <laughs> but they never really cared about its value because to me it's priceless. And that's my story. Thanks guys, you've been awesome. Our next story comes from Heidi Geisler. Heidi is a drama teacher and theatre maker here in Dunedin. Now, Heidi's lived in Dunedin for quite a few years, but she's a country girl at heart, as the story shows. Please enjoy Heidi's story. Thank you. I'm Heidi. Nice to be here. And thank you for inviting me up again, Abby. Um, the setting of my story uh, is kind of also at the core of my story and the core of me. So my Turanga Waiwai, my home, the place where I grew up, uh, is down south in the Catlins. Uh, it is beautiful. It's literally called the Southern Scenic Way because it's scenic. <laughs> um, it is bush, uh, native bush with beautiful native birds and uh, estuaries and beach and cliff tops and penguins and rolling hills, farmland. It's beautiful. Uh, it's also in the middle of nowhere. Um, uh, my village where I grew up is Papatoi. Uh, there's about 30 residents um, there, was and still is. Um, most of them retired. Um, me and my brothers um, were the only kids there by one. There was another local boy who lived in Papadawai. So there's four, four kids growing up. Um, I loved it. I loved my childhood. Um, it is the essence of me. It's, I'm a country girl um, and it defines so much about me now that I'm only just beginning to realise. Um, my family members, I'll introduce them, they are, I have an older brother who's about three years older than me, a younger brother, five years younger than me, and from about ten years old it was me and my two brothers and my mum living at home. Uh, my mum is one of the best people I know, I describe her as crazy but in a beautiful way. She has defiantly refused to uh, go grey. Uh, so from a very young age, I remember every few months my Saturday nights, Saturday nights were with the plastic clear gloves and <laughs> bottle supermarket store colour dye, which was, could be red to brown to copper to blonde, depending on how she was feeling that month, uh, dyeing her hair. Um, oddly, to this day, I have personally never dyed my hair, so I wonder if that had something to do with that decision-making. Just the smell of that chemical in my, burning my nostrils, maybe? I don't know. Um, those were the kind of evenings we had in the middle of winter, me and my mum, uh, while my brothers were somewhere. We never really knew. Uh, my older brother is was our fearless leader. It was kind of our nuclear family unit. We... Um, we kind of roamed around. We never had a lot of money. We didn't realise we had a lot of money until we looked at other people in our lives. But to us, that was that was normal. Uh, my older brother was always our leader. He took charge. We would spend hours and hours at the beach doing uh, explorations and military operations. Where and our names were always British, so it was general. Uh, Williams or General Wallace or something and then and I was always Captain Jones I was always I think Jones is Welsh <laughs> I think I was Welsh um, my younger brother was always like Lieutenant 
Um, I can't even remember now, always something weirdly British. Um, and we would talk in kind of false British accents as these military people. I don't know what movie my older brother had seen. Um, but somehow that related to our, to our missions every afternoon or every weekend. It would take us like 25 minutes to, to advance up the beach to the next fallen log. It took like half an hour um, because we would be on our hands and knees and my younger brother would be rolling down the sand and we would have multitudes of sticks and we'd have a little stick tucked in here and then we'd have a big stick. I had a bazooka. Um, I didn't really know what that was but I knew I had to hold it on my shoulder. Um, I don't know where my older brother found that out from at the age of 12. Um, and we just played like this. We had this other game where we would go deliberately at the estuary when the tide was coming in and um, it was, it's quite a powerful estuary and so when the tide was coming in there'd be quite these large waves that we named swoopers, super cool, and we would wait until we could see this wave breaking at the river mouth and then it would like soar up the river towards us and the aim of the game was to run directly in front of it without getting wet. Um, we were genius, <laughs> uh, clearly academic. Um, we played that for hours without any adults. Now looking back, probably wasn't wise, but um, we did that. We never, um, my mum would always ask us, what have you been doing, where, have we, where are you going? And we'd be like, oh, just missions. And she'd be like, great. <laughs> You're alive, you can swim, we're good to go. <laughs> um, I remember one time uh, my younger brother was always kind of, because he was maybe younger, maybe smaller, really, really fast. I don't know. So he, so my older brother was my leader, or our leader. My younger brother was like the fearless one that was always like the dummy doll. Like he would, he would be the first one to be thrown into the river. He would be the first one to swing off the rope swing. He was like our, our test dummy almost. <laughs> Looking back, not super safe. Nobody asked questions. Um, I remember vividly, which kind of sums up a lot of my memories with my brothers, um, the only one-lane bridge going into my village and along the southern scenic route was had to get repaired. One-lane bridge, quite long. Um, and so the only other way to get to our village was if you did a detour, which took half an hour longer on a gravel road to go up the valley, across another bridge and come back down. Our house was only about 200 metres from the other side of the bridge. So instead of doing that half an hour extra, we convinced our mum, who also kind of loved it, she would park on one side, the, the side of the bridge that wasn't where our house was on, at a car park to like a nature walk. And then with our school bags and in our school uniforms um, and shopping and whatever she had brought home from the warehouse, which was usually like a $10 jug because my older brother had blown up the other one, um, we would climb over the safety gates, which were like massive, or like squeeze through them, or like kind of Jimmy ninja style around the side of it, um, and then walk to this open beer bones bridge that had been dismantled by all these construction workers, and like kind of like skedaddle across these beams with the water flowing underneath us, laden up with all the stuff, and then climb over the gate at the other side and then walk home. And my mum thought that was great because it saved half an hour's worth of petrol and we thought it was the best thing ever. <laughs> so that's kind of the stuff that we ended up doing. Uh, one night my older brother's like, we have to go on this mission, you can't tell anybody. Oops, I'm telling everybody. Um, <laughs> we had to go because all of the stuff that they were dismantling off this bridge was just kind of being chucked to the sides. Um, and eventually, they were, when they were finished, I am assuming that they were going to put all the stuff, you know, like 
bits of bridge and boards and planks and stuff and nails and signs and roadworks and earthworks, whatever stuff needed for this kind of construction of this bridge, they kind of just put to the side. So um, not realising that the guys look kids were around, uh, <laughs> we decided, well, my older brother decided that it would, we needed this stuff. So we needed it. Like, there was no option for us not to have it. So when my mother was... I don't know, maybe the dye was drying that night on her hair, I'm not sure. Um, we snuck out, the three of us, and, um, and we brought back like stop signs and road cones and a slow down sign, one of those big yellow ones. Um, but our, our shining glory that's till the day still is where we put it was a giant, like, I want to say 15 to 20 metre long, giant plank wooden thing that had been tantalised and then tarred. And it was one of the beams that had actually been taken off the bridge that they were then replacing. So with my younger brother in the middle barely doing anything, me and the one end, my older brother, we friggin' managed to get that hunk of thing back to our house. But then we realised, brother, genius, uh, mum's home. So we just... <laughs> So we, with this giant heavy, heavy thing, were like, great, we got it! What now? <laughs> cool, great, present? Not sure. So we decided to take it bush. So we went across the road, directly across our house was this lovely native bush, bush between us, our house and the bridge. And we just found, we walked up this hill, it was muddy, we were sliding. I, I don't know what our excuse was when we finally got home, but it kind of been can't have been any, worth anything because we were covered in mud and leaves and stuff. We finally tracked it through the bush like 20 metres and put it down there. And then over the course of the next few months, that thing made it into the trees, into the canopy. We somehow managed to tie it up there. And then we used all the other stuff that we pilfered from the bridge, which was, let's be honest, every night by this point. Um, we created a monster tree house. Monster tree house with tantalised, like, tar-sealed, like, beams from a bridge. It was like a monster fort. There was no getting in if you were an enemy, which we didn't have because we were really young. Um, my younger brother was pushed off onto a really, really thin, frayed, really old rope multiple times off that thing. We were 20 metres in the air, like, I don't know how he didn't die, but he didn't. So go us. Um... So that was what I grew up with. Um, I grew up with my mum wheelbarrowing baking to our neighbours up the road because her car couldn't start again because she left the lights on. Um, I grew up with my brothers who were fearless leaders and um, being thrown out of trees and made me laugh. And that was my, that was my unit. But, and in that unit I felt safe and secure and that was normal. That was totally normal. But it wasn't until things started to change at school or going to school that I realised that there at home with my brothers and my mum, there was one thing. But when we went outside or to outsiders, uh, we were on the fringe. So my area is, was, it's changed a little bit, but was predominantly white, rich farmers. So these kids came from a two-parent household. They came from two or three kids in their family. Um, when we went to their houses to play, we would drive 
motorcycles, four-wheelers, or we'd have a ride on the digger, or we'd be taken to Dunedin to see the movies and Moana Pool and had takeaway. Um, they had the best of everything. Um, at school, we were the only family that we had ever heard of that wasn't on a movie or a TV that had had a one-parent household. That was foreign, where I grew up. When I later moved into my, and my school was small, like there was no escaping it, there was nine of us in my last year at my primary school. It was the most tiny rural school, um, and I loved that school. I, I don't look back on that with angst or anger or upsetness. I loved it, but we stood out, let's say, because there were so few of us and they were all farmers type thing. Um, when I went to my high school, there was two other families that, were, that we were grouped with, one was the only Māori family in the area um, who was also a sole parent family, but they had lots of kids. Um, so we were kind of put in with the other race, you know, we were, we were ostracised in that way. But not in a nasty way, we just knew that we were in that group. And then there was another family that were white that had a solo parent household, and they um, stood out in the same way because they loved ACDC and wanted to make a family band, but they were horrific. Um, <laughs> truly awful singing ACDC songs, thunderstruck at like school assemblies and stuff. <laughs> um, so there was like three of us, but nobody in my class really, and, and nobody in my brother's class. And So it was this strange thing of loving my child and feeling so secure and at one and knowing what was expected of me at home, and then out there, it would just be like little things. It would just be... It would just be my mum turning up in an amazing purple coat that she had got from the thrift store or the op shop, and then all the other mummers in puffer jackets. It would be, um, I had slightly cheaper shoes, and it would be, um, where's your dad? Why hasn't your dad come to see your netball game? Or it would be, um, why is your brother here um, supporting you at your formal or at your singing thing? Where's the rest of your family? You know, that kind of thing. And it wasn't... I mean, I guess with that kind of stuff, you know at the back of your mind or in your gut that, that something's not quite right or, or it makes you kind of pause. But it's not really something that affects you. You kind of, you kind of go, oh, okay, and maybe I did a bit like Rosie and I was just like, I'm going to perform my way out of it or well, you can't get to me because I already know this. Like, you kind of brush it aside or you kind of deal with it. And it's not until I finally left school and then found people who, whose families looked like mine, really, that solo parent families or um, family or people that came from harder backgrounds or whatever, not that it's a competition, but I saw a whole array of different people and that they liked me and that it didn't matter and that it never came up and, and all that kind of thing that I was like, oh, this is actually fine. It didn't matter anymore what you look like. And I think maybe 20 years later, maybe society has slightly changed. It is more normal to have different, what that family unit looks like. Um, I don't know. But to me, yeah. Now I look back at my childhood and I go, oh, that was a circumstance. But it, it didn't define my love of my area or my home or my brothers or my mum. It's just now part of me. And it, yeah, forever will be, I guess. So I guess maybe I learnt that one, just because somebody looks like that or has that doesn't actually mean anything when it comes to their personality or their experiences. Or just because this person dimish, diminishes what I thought that I was doesn't mean I can let it diminish me. I don't know. I'll figure it out. <laughs> Thank you. Our next storyteller is Sarah Georgie. 
Sarah Georgie is a teacher, actor, director, divisor, and choreographer. Basically, she does everything. Um, so I just want to start off by the first sort of segment of my story is about my childhood. And I, as a child, was the centre of my world. Um, and I know that all children are because they're egotistical and it's all about them and what the world does for them. And yeah, it's, that's what you are as a child. But I wasn't only the centre of my world, I was the centre of this enormous family's universe. And I felt as a child it all revolved around me. And it kind of did because I was the first child in my family. I was the first grandchild of all these um, aunties and uncles and grandparents. And I was so loved. I was so blessed. And I kind of just ran the show. I remember being at barbecues and I was in control of the sauce. So if somebody wanted sauce for their sausage, they'd come up to me and I'd allocate them a certain amount and just for everybody in the whole barbecue. Um, at Christmas time, I was in charge of the seating allocation where everyone wants to sit, uh, how they got a drink beforehand and how much Christmas crackers everybody was allowed and who was going to pop it with who and everyone indulged me and even when the other children came along, my sister and the other cousins, um, I still felt that they, and I was a bit entitled and I knew that I was still the boss. I just did. Um, and yeah, so I had this amazing, wonderful childhood and I felt connected to everyone around me. I felt similar to people around me. I felt just a part of everything. Um, only edginess I might have had is that my mum was a vegetarian, which was controversial when I was that age, and my dad was a Canadian hippie with long hair, and they were both nurses. Um, but yeah, that was sort of my little point of difference, I thought that made me a bit cool. Uh, and yeah, I was just, had this lovely, satisfied, great, normal upbringing. And then I hit 12, and my absolute beloved grandparents, who I adored with all my heart, uh, died within a week of each other. So one died, then the other died a week later. The day after that, my dog died of eight years, which was just heartbreaking. And then about three weeks later, my mum told me she was pregnant. So I was 12, I had a, a nine-year-old sister, and then my mum was going to have another baby. And that's when I coined the phrase for me, wobbly. That, that's when I felt these wobbles, when things got stressful, when things were a bit tough. And... I came up with this strategy because I didn't like that feeling. I didn't like being present in that grief. I didn't like being in that moment. That I came up with a strategy of removing myself away from myself right back to the edge and becoming almost a director of my life. I've always wanted to be an actor. Um, I was performing on stage when I was four, so I loved the theatre, I loved the state. I was going to be a dancer, but I got boobs and hips, and that was the end of that. Mm. So that's why I've become an actor. And I um, almost just could direct my life scene by scene in frames and shots. And whenever anything traumatic happened to me, I pulled back into this directory sort of state. And that happened when my mum sat me down and said... Uh, you know the fishing trip that your dad's been on? And this is sort of when I, about a year after all this happened. He's not coming home. And that moment I felt that grief and that wobble coming back and I pulled back and thought, wow, this would make a great scene. This would be an amazing shot. And I could direct myself through these emotions. I could direct myself into 
how I was going to ring up my best friend on the phone and deliver the news. And I could hear what she was going to say. And she actually said to me, I don't believe you. Your family's perfect. It's not happening. And I, was, I remember almost taking mental notes. Great. That would be so cool for a movie later on in life when I'm going to be a director, when I'm going to be making stories. Um, so that was the strategy that I came up with, this disconnected tool where I could sit right back on the edge, right back on the fringe, and look at my life as if I was a documentary maker. And the biggest, most important moments in my life, I can remember as if I'm putting a video into a video machine and pushing play, and I can pause it. And at any moment I can remember the weather, what I was wearing, what people around me were doing. It's so picture perfect and clear because of the coping strategy that I came across. And so I'm just gonna share a couple of those big moments in my life, which, are the movie scenes that I created. So I was at home, this was even probably a year past that time, the phone rings and I pick it up and there's a woman on the end of the phone and she says, uh, is Chris, my mother's maiden name, Hendry there, uh, she's now probably Chris Johnston. And I said, um, yeah, I'll just get it for you. She came and picked up the phone and my mother started talking and then she burst into tears and then she started laughing. And then she burst into tears and she was laughing. And I ran back into my room where my friends were and I felt that wobbly feeling coming. And I thought the only reason who it could be would be someone telling me that my father had died because it's the only reason she'd be happy and sad at the same time. Um, and so I thought, all right, become the director. And I started to, to film this scene. And then I came back out and she said, oh, I need something, something I need to tell you. And I went, right, I'm going to prepare myself for this big dramatic moment. And I sat down and I called my friends around me and I gathered and it all felt very theatrical. And the shot was lined up well. I made sure I was sort of in the centre and my mum was framed well. And she said, that's your older sister, half-sister, who I had no idea about whatsoever. Uh, and she said, oh, uh, and she's, she wants to meet us all. And I had a... I just, sorry, in this moment, <laughs> I'm not directing this. I um, just thought that's probably why I was so loved as a little girl. When I was the first grandchild, that would have been, just made that connection then. Um, yeah, they would have never had that great, that missing daughter. Mm. Right, anyway, uh, that, I was, uh, that, that was my big sister, and I thought, well, that was amazing. Uh, best adoption story ever. She came back and being part of our life. But that scene, that shot, I can remember exactly what it looked like, and it's one that is ingrained in my mind forever. And I moved on from that another, I swear, a week later, we all went to um, our best friend's house for dinner, my mum's best friend, and we are all sitting around the table, and my mum said... My mum's best mate said, oh, something about my dad's first wife. And I went, hang on a minute. You mean mum? No, 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 before your mum, he was married to someone else. And I went, really? And I felt that wobbly feeling coming on. I jumped back out and I can see everything as clear as a picture in that frame. Yeah, um, yeah, you, then you didn't know about his wife. You probably don't know about your half-sister. What? Here's another one. I'm thinking I'm the oldest of my entire family, and there's another half-sister popping up. And it was just this another bot moment dropping, and I didn't want to be in that moment. I didn't want to be present. I just wanted to be out of it, and I could direct it from outside, which was great, because the next part of it that happened was the man who had said it, his wife said, oh, well, why don't you just tell your son about your first baby as well? And it all just 
fell out the bottom. <laughs> so that's another story that I'm going to lock in to create for the movie of my life. Um, and then the final little part I want to tell about being on the fringes and directing from inside, uh, from out on the edges, is that my sister, who I met about three weeks after that, decided to take us on a horse trek. And this is the first time I'd met her. I was with my other sister who was a little bit younger than me and my best friend Tracy and she took us on this horse trek in Christchurch and the man who was leading the trek was blind and he, he was to, with all the horses and he asked if anyone had ridden a horse before and I said yeah yeah I have I've ridden a horse before he's like great I'm going to put you on this one here and I kind of went like this which meant only once because I was running out but he couldn't see that I'd done that um, so he put me on this enormous stallion it was huge and I'm sitting up on top of it, and we're going through these uh, shrubs and bushes, getting closer to the ocean. And this horse, I can feel underneath me, is wanting to go. And I feel this anxiety and this wobble coming up inside me, jump into that director's seat. Right, what's going to happen from now? I know something's going to be great. Something massive is about to happen, and it did. The second that we hit the open beach, my horse took off. My friend Tracy's horse took off because it saw mine bolt. She jumped off it and fell over onto the ground and kind of bounced a couple of times and then sort of jumped up laughing and she was fine. My feet came out of the stirrups and I did what you're not supposed to do and grabbed its neck and I'm holding onto it and I can feel my hands just sliding and then I slide underneath it so that I'm looking up at its chin. Storming along the beach, I've locked my hands and they're sliding and they're sliding and they're sliding and I just know the point that I'm going to let go. So I let go and it just stands, chunked straight in the middle of my chest, clips up through my jaw. I'm lying on the beach, um, I can feel trickling, not sure quite what it is, uh, and it's that wobbly feeling. But I managed to come out of it and stand back and look. And I can remember in that moment the, the human shield that was formed as people were coming down the beach. It was freezing cold. And I was there for about an hour and a half. It felt like 10 minutes, which is a great thing you can do when you're making a film is condense the time down so you're not waiting around for that boring amount of time. And then a helicopter comes and picks me up. Westpac helicopter, get airlifted, rush to Christchurch Hospital. Uh, on the gurney as it's running down the corridor and everyone's calling out you know 50 over 30 stat I don't know we think we've got crush injury could be heart and I'm going this is great this is amazing if I'm ever in Shortland Street or on ER I've got it I know how to be in the moment even though I'm at the back on the edges and I thought well at least the good thing about this is I'm not going to die because surely my last moment won't be thinking about Shortland Street and ER um, and I was okay from that I broke every rib in my jaw and my body uh, I also had this amazing hoofmark scar, which when I was sort of 10 years younger, I used to sunbathe Poplis in Australia and I could get this cool hoof print scar right across the middle of my chest. But those moments are so clear in my life because I developed this incredible tool of being able to pull back and look. And it worked really, really well for me until my mid-30s, which became this terribly dark, traumatic time. And... I pulled so far back from myself. I removed myself to the edges so far that I couldn't see me anymore. And that's that lost feeling like you're on the absolute edges of the world for me. I was so far away from myself. Um, I got through that 
and I coped. But I still have, for a good couple of years after that, it's just I would call myself disconnected. I was disengaged. I didn't know who I was anymore. I shunned all things theatre, all things that had to do with creativity and making things that would cause me to be listening and present and responding and being in the moment because I'd forgotten how to do that. It was such a dark patch. Um, and then I walked into the Fortune Theatre bar and I saw this man walking, working behind the bar and he was the most incredible, amazing, beautiful person who I started to get to know. And I could just run off a list of all the things that he is. Creative, intelligent, articulate, wonderful, beautiful, supportive, kind. And um, I decided, well, somehow, I, it's strange because I didn't think he was interested in me, which is why he maybe could, because I was so suave, being cool, playing against the fact that this beautiful person wouldn't want me, this broken, destroyed mess of a person. But I think that kind of gave off maybe an edgy vibe. <laughs> maybe. Maybe if you'd seem appealing and intriguing in some strange way. But I thought, I wonder if I can use this tool for the powers of good. Can I make this thing that I used to deal with for negative emotions and negative experiences, can I turn it around to direct my life in a more positive happy ending kind of way. So I decided to direct a movie called My Romantic Summer, which is, if you want to think, I wanted like cheesy rom-com, you know, happy ever after kind of thing. So I thought, right, this, this is going to be a beautiful summer thing, I'm going to have the best summer of my life, and it was. It was amazing. It was one of the best summers of my life. But that was two summers ago because my amazing, wonderful partner's here tonight watching me. Um, and what has happened since then is with the support of him and my amazing family, my incredible colleagues that I work with, I've actually had, I've been able to shelf that tool. And for the first time, I would say in as many years of years of years, I am comfortable looking through my own eyes. I'm comfortable being present, forming relationships. I feel so strong, even though I've got the cry coming on behind, I can feel it. <laughs> I feel so strong and connected to my world around me, where I see the most amazing beauty. And even though that, yeah, it's hard when it's painful to be in that moment, to let it affect you that way, I'd rather be there now than living way back on the edges, because for so long I was just an audience member in my life. And I wasn't actually telling the story, I was just trying to control things that I couldn't. And now, I'm not. Now I'm back in the middle, like that little girl. So, thank you very much. That's <laughs>
Thank you again to all our storytellers who bared their soul and shared their stories. Stay tuned for another episode of Light to Light in the future. I've been your host, Abby Howells. See you next time.